Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work conducted via Skype. So apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them and how the socioeconomic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212, as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to English conceptual, video and installation artist Jeremy Deller. Born in London in March 1966, Jeremy studied the history of art at the Courtauld Institute and then the University of Sussex beginning his art career in the late 1980s after a two-week stay at the Warhol factory in New York. Many of his works are collaborative and explicitly political. In 2001, he brought together nearly a thousand people for the Battle of Orgreave, a historical recreation of the pivotal confrontation between workers and the police in the miners' strike of 1984-85. For this, and his memory bucket documentary about the Waco siege of 1993, he won the Turner Prize in 2004. Subsequent projects have included Our Hobby is Depeche Mode, a documentary he made with Nick Abrahams about Depeche Mode fans, Conversations about Iraq in 2009, a bouncy replica of Stonehenge for the 2012 Olympics in London, We're Here Because We're Here, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme in 2016, a set of posters for the 2017 general election, mocking Theresa May's strong and stable slogan, and Everybody in the Place, an Incomplete History of Britain 1984 to 1992, a documentary about rave culture and politics in 1980s Britain, screened on the BBC in 2019. So Jeremy, welcome to Suite 212. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I was um, particularly keen to at least mention your film with Nick Abrahams on Depeche Mode fans because I joined the Depeche Mode fan club when I was 12. And I think my first piece of uh, published writing was in the Depeche Mode fanzine on Speak and Spell (laughs) around about the same time. Right, so that's your kind of Depeche Mode, your Speak and Spell era, right, okay. Yeah, they were the first live band I ever saw as well in Wembley Arena. I think 98, so they've been touring for Ultra. And you got a sense of them having this huge devotional fan base. But at that time, I had no idea how popular they were in Eastern Europe and South America in particular. And that only came to me later. So it's really interesting to see it portrayed in the film and how much the film focuses on people in Iran and behind the Iron Curtain who listened to Depeche Mode like surreptitiously or even in one case snuck across the Berlin Wall or uh, snuck across the east-west German border to get a tape of music of the masses. So yeah, I found that a really interesting documentary. Thank you. For me, that was the most interesting part of the film, really, was the Cold War era and post-Cold War era life of the band and their their following in Russia and Eastern Europe, especially. It's just, it's still massive, but it meant so much to those people at the time. 
in a way that was just almost by accident because of what the band were up to, but, but also what was going on politically. This, the two things came together and created this huge support for the band. It's sort of equivalent of Beatlemania, really. What happened in Britain, this, that kind of social change through music or portrayed through music was huge. And so it wasn't a surprise that we went to Russia to make the film. We had, fans are still absolutely fanatical about the band. Yeah, I visited the uh, Depeche Mode bar in Tallinn a few years ago. So there's this theme bar quite near central Tallinn that, you know, the bar staff all wear Depeche Mode t-shirts and the walls are covered with posters and gig tickets and the jukebox only plays Depeche Mode. And quite pointedly, the bar staff all have headphones on because maybe they've heard enough Depeche Mode for the time being. But it really is incredible, the uh, global fan base, but particularly the former Eastern Soviet bloc is absolutely huge. Well, it was illicit music initially and then it became allowed as it were but it still had that element of danger to it I imagine and it's just wrapped up in the freedom in inverted commas that they were given after the fall of the Berlin Wall and their struggle for that so it became incredibly powerful in a way that you know the band probably weren't even that aware of at the time for them it's just lost revenue often because it was most of the sales were bootlegs you know sales of tapes and so on they didn't tour there for a long time either because they knew they couldn't really make money doing it because of the way the kind of economy was structured. So when they did, it was, you see it, you know, you see those live concerts in Russia. They're amazing. You can find for the first tour of them going to East, what was former East Germany. It's really interesting. So yeah, it was a very interesting experience traveling around the world, trying to make a film about the band. Yeah, and the film has uh, recently become available on Vimeo, so we'll share that for our Patreon yes. subscribers. You can find it. I mean, it was paid for by Mute, you know, the record label, but it was never, didn't see the light of day, really, because of that's what happens with a lot of films about music and bands, is that someone doesn't like it, and that's it. Someone in the chain of command, and don't want to piss off one of the few bands that make shed loads of money for people. So if someone doesn't like it in the band camp, as it were, then you're not going to release it because you don't want to jeopardise your relationship with the band, even if you are, you know, the record label. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the politics of getting these types of films made and released is something that really interests me and I think will interest a lot of our listeners as well. So it makes sense to go from here straight to the film that you had broadcast on BBC Four last year, Everybody in the Place, An Incomplete History of Britain, 1984 to 1992. This was a documentary about acid house, rave culture, and the politics of 1980s Britain that took in the miners' strike, the New Age travellers, I think it hints at least at the Battle of the Beanfield at Stonehenge in 1985, Uh, the sort of politics of Thatcherism generally, and the post-war heritage of movements like punk and post-punk. And then rave being a kind of last hurrah of this, you know, what Mark Fisher called popular modernism, the genuinely organic popular culture that drew from what had previously been thought of maybe as like high and popular culture, merged these things together in a really interesting way. So I wondered if you'd like to first just um, describe the format of that documentary to our listeners who may not have seen it. Well, the format is slightly different from a, a traditional documentary about a music movement. And I really wanted to avoid the traditional format, which is basically people sitting in recording studios or in front of lots of books or records talking about something that happened to them 30 years ago. I wanted to avoid that. Having said that, I am in the film a lot, but I'm not talking about my personal experiences as such. 
so the format is me in a school in London talking to a group of students who are between the ages of 16 and 18 they're politics students about my take on that moment in British history in terms of the music and social history and how they were coinciding or colliding almost it's a sort of a history lesson because for them it is history this is something that was happening 10 years at least maybe 15 years before they were born even so it's something that's not within their memory or even their parents memory a lot of them because a lot of their parents weren't brought up in the uk so it's not something that's part of their sort of folk memory as such so in a way i'm what i'm doing is i'm showing these young people footage and talking to them about things that they would not have been aware of necessarily or in a way they would not have been aware of so it's just wanting to see this through their eyes, not through my eyes or someone reminiscing about it. It's just what their reaction is to it and how they're feeling about it. So in a way you're thinking about them when you're watching the film, you think about, well, what do they think of that? That music or this party or this piece of history or politics that was going on at the time. So it's hopefully then seen through now. And that's a really interesting aspect of the film is, is the way that, the format you choose makes those teenagers reactions as important as the material itself and yeah like you say removes it from this slightly tiresome sort of nostalgia tv industry that's been yes. a big thing over the last sort of well during the 21st century i think you know and i particularly enjoyed seeing the students watching the video of Kraftwerk being played at a club in detroit and lots yes. of south african-american kids dancing to Kraftwerk and getting that sense of that cultural interchange or you talking to the students about Karl Marx and quoting from the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon or explaining to them who Paul Staines is, mm. better known now as Guido Fawkes, his movement from the rave scene to being this kind of like far-right libertarian provocateur. How easy was it to convey that political material to the students and how easy was it to get past people at BBC4? Well, it's two questions. Yeah. <laughs> I think my first question is how easy was it to convey that to the young people? To be honest, this is something I've been thinking about for about 20, 22 years, 23 years. I made a diagram in 1996 which connected brass bands to acid house music. And basically that diagram is the film. It's about British history. It's about music throughout the world. It's about deindustrialization. So I'd, I've been thinking about this for a long, long time. So for me, I kind of knew what I wanted when I saw the clip of the craft work, the club and people dancing in the club to craft work on this dance show in, in Detroit, I knew that whatever I was going to do, that clip had to be in the film. So I sort of, I didn't even shoehorn it in the film. It makes t total sense, but I just knew that in the film it would be one of the great moments almost, I would say. I was quite clear in my head about the story, more or less. Of course it changed as I was doing a bit of research and writing it out, but... I was interested in our relationship to the countryside, which I am anyway, our relationship to our history, to industry, to how we view popular music, how we value it or don't value it. So for me, I was trying to take something very seriously that is often dismissed very quickly and very easily, especially that music, because there's no lyrical content to speak of. And also it's a, it was so wrapped up in the drug culture that, it, again, that's another way to dismiss something. Oh, it's just music for people on drugs or it's just a way of selling drugs, whatever. Which it was for some people, obviously. But it actually had a lot of value to it and was speaks volumes about society and changes within society. So, to be honest, I knew what I was doing up to a point. I mean, teaching, though, I'd never done that. It was giving a talk, but it was a much more elaborate way of giving a talk. And 
that was the most tiring, exhausting thing I've ever done in my life, I think, teaching or, or giving a talk like that over a period of a day. The second thing is the BBC Four thing. Well, I didn't make it for BBC Four. I made it for Freeze uh, and the, it was paid for by Gucci. So the money came from elsewhere and it was like quite a big budget from what I know. Not that I ever knew what it was, but I could get more or less whatever I wanted on that film in terms of copyright and clearances on the whole. But I'd offered it to BBC Four. They had it for like almost nine months before they showed it. It was there and it was, I don't know why they didn't show it earlier, but they just had, you know, they were just sitting on it basically waiting for a moment to show it, but they could have gone out at any time, I think. But I don't think they were really confident about it necessarily, or some people weren't there. And then in the end, it was the highest rated show they did in that whole year for, in terms of its response from young people. So they were very happy to have had it, but they, initially they weren't that over the moon about it. Uh, well, certain people weren't, but I was so happy to get that music in, especially the Kraftwerk clip. I managed to get that clip with the music. Kraftwerk cleared that for £2,000 to use a very long piece of their music in the film. I was just amazed. So things worked out very well on the film, to be honest. I think we were very lucky to get most of the music we got in the end. But that's not really what your question was. I'm just reminiscing now. Reminiscing about reminiscing. No, well, I mean, the film was very popular. And what really interested me about it was that there was a sense of it being a genuine television event in a way that feels quite rare now. I mean, obviously, a lot of the television that gets widely talked about now are long series mm. shown online. There's not so much of a sense of people all watching something together, although I think that still exists. You know, I mean, I could pick plenty of examples, but say the finale of Breaking Bad, I knew lots of people talking about that at the same time. But there was a real sense when this film came out, lots of people were saying, look, you should really watch this film. It particularly seemed to tap into this idea of like acid communism that Mark Fisher had been developing just before he died, of the work that people like Jeremy Gilbert and Kia Milburn had been doing looking at counterculture as a source of collective joy and the way that sort of collective joy could be trammeled into a political project. And of course, this was before the 2019 general election. There was a much bigger sense of hope that the country could be fashioned into something better. And I think that culture could play a part of that. So that really interested me about also, the programme, really. That's true. There's also this huge movement in July last year, the sort of fuck Boris movement, which is all, which was often, is based around A, youth and B, music. In a way, that whole scene with grime and so on, you get flat, almost get flashbacks to what it might, what it was like 30 years ago, the way young people were really getting so energised by a homegrown music scene and taking part in it and feeling ownership of it and something that was incredibly special to them. And then it being politicised through certain artists or th through the current government as it was, or as it is, sorry, seeming to have no interest in young people and then the whole Brexit thing as well, of course. So maybe that worked. But also I think there's a whole generation of people about my age who have very fond memories of that time and I think we're interested in seeing a film that took it seriously and didn't just bang on about drugs and DJs. I mean, there was one mention of drugs in my film and no mention of DJs, but the mention of drugs is in there very briefly because I couldn't talk about drugs at any length to a group of school children. I certainly couldn't talk about drugs at any length and promote them or talk about them in a positive light 
to school children because that's what they were. So I had to be very careful. So in the end, I just thought, well, I better not, I, I need to mention it once, but very briefly, because if, even if I but accidentally promote drugs or say something positive about them and their effect, that could have stopped the shoot and someone would have just said, right, that's it, you've got to go. So I had to be very careful. I talked to one of the artists who's in the film, one of the musicians, and I said to him, because I really wanted the music from him, it was actually Bill Drummond from the KLF, I said, I'm trying to make a film about Acid House without mentioning drugs or DJs. And he said, you've got to do it because he was really into that aspect as well. So I wasn't mad thinking that I could try and do that. It was actually got support from people who are actually there making music. Because I think they too feel that it's not been given its dues as a kind of musical moment in the way that punk has just endlessly sort of regurgitated as this amazing moment in British history, which it probably was for a lot of people. Acid House never gets the credit for what it was trying to achieve at the time or what the music became for people. Now, it did change lives. All those things, you know, it did change lives. It didn't change the world, but it changed people's lives, which is pretty good going. Yeah, and something you, you bring into the film is the Criminal Law and Public Order Act of, I think, 1994. Mm. It was eventually passed, introduced into Parliament a year or two earlier, that basically banned this public playing, I think, of repetitive beats without a licence or something like that. And there's a wonderful piece of music, Flutter by Orteca, which, you know, is a 10-minute, piece that flouted that piece of legislation by not having any repeated beats and they issued the record with a piece of advice saying have a lawyer and a musicologist handy when you play this so you can prove to anyone who tries to shut you down that this complies with the legislation but I think there's obviously parallels between that piece of legislation in the 90s and the legislation being made against drill music now. Absolutely I mean this will always happen won't it? It's this historical thing it's been happening probably since the 1930s or something this especially around race as well. Youth, race, danger, drugs, subcultures, and misunderstanding of youth movements or kind of demonization of them. So I'm sure the young people watching my film must have felt some kind of echoes of what they were going through or what they felt about government interference or their ability to make music or to be in clubs and so on. So I'm sure they understood that. And again, coming out of the Brexit, moment i think those young people were massively aware of their role in society and the, and the pressure they were under a lot of them were muslim and so uh, you know they'd seen a lot of very negative stereotyping and a lot of being under a lot of pressure basically and probably being quite exposed by the atmosphere in britain two years ago so yes i think there were a lot of echoes and i'm sure they, that they got i think they got quite a lot out of that i'd like to think yeah, and there's certain things the students in the room say that really struck a chord with a lot of viewers. One of them taps into what you were just talking about, where one of the pupils say that I feel like a Londoner rather than being British and talks about the sense of London feeling different to a lot of the rest of the country, with country being the operative word. Yeah, um, she just ask if she went to the, ever been to the countryside or outside of London. And I think in response to the question, I've been, I've been to the countryside, she said, I've been to Oxford. And she said he, even in Oxford, she felt of conscious because people were looking at her because she was wearing a headscarf. I mean, she probably could have gone to Oxford University, maybe, you know, a lot of very bright kids. And, but maybe I think a lot of them end up in London. They just stay in London to university because they they're not quite sure what the world is like out there. I mean, I feel I don't really know what to do when I go into the countryside, like the, you know, the proper countryside. For me, it's just a mystery. And so for them, it must be even more so. 
Yes, so that that really interested me. And then the sort of concluding remarks from the students in the film, where you and they talk about social media usurping pop music as a sort of central plank of youth culture. And obviously, Mm. you can throw a stone and find an opinion column saying like, you know, young people aren't making music like the Sex Pistols a public enemy because they're too busy on their phones. But it was quite interesting to hear the pupils in the room, you know, articulate you know, a more interesting and nuanced version of that argument, but a version of it nonetheless. And I wondered how you felt about that. I was interested in how often they mentioned it during the filming when they were watching things, that they were just amazed that in these footage of these huge raves and clubs that no one has got a phone, because of course they weren't invented. So no one's filming, no one's taking pictures, no one's live this or that. And so that's constant documentation but also that surveillance that self-surveillance of yourself but also of other people of your friends isn't occurring so people are able just to be themselves maybe and behave in a way and dance in a way and dress in a way that is a bit more free than now and people are sort of so conscious of their image and conscious that they might if they did something silly it might end up being sent around all their friends and so on and it made to look stupid or do something stupid and, and that could be a problem for the rest of their lives almost. So I think they looked at that and, and marveled at that freedom, that pre-internet freedom. Of course, the internet and social media has given a lot of people freedom as well, but it's taken other kinds of freedom away potentially. And for them, that was the most striking thing. I mean, it didn't occur to me at all because I grew up with that. So, and I don't really go to clubs anymore. I don't go to clubs anymore. So I don't know what happens in them. But that seemed to me quite a surprising thing and also there's another comment there's a great comment show the battle of all grieve and have some music over and talk about the minor strike and one of the students asks me did they go on strike because of climate change yes the climate change and that was like wow that's amazing of course that's such an obvious thought and question of course no they didn't but that's great to get that viewpoint that really obvious viewpoint about something that you never really think about in a way yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like your response that a lot of the people who would have been very opposed to the miners in the mid-80s would be kind of climate change deniers in the 21st yeah. century. We'll come back to Orgrieve in a minute because I want to go into detail in your project on that. But just one more concluding thought on some of the issues raised by everybody in the place. Another quite melancholic thing that I think is maybe in the background of the film but isn't something that's explicitly discussed I often think back to a friend of mine who was in a, a group on Fortuna Pop called Evans the Death, and they were, they were very young and they were playing, they were in their early 20s. They used to stay around my house quite a lot because my housemate was involved with the label and would often complain that basically it was really hard for them to make headway beyond a certain point as musicians because bands from the 60s through to the 90s or early 2000s just weren't really kind of getting out of the way in the way that they used to. And, you know, I sort of picked up something in the film as well, a sense of slight frustration that in a lot of fields of culture, but particularly music, it's become quite hard for the young to take over from the old in a way that used to happen. And I wondered, you know, what you think of that idea and if you have any thoughts about how, you know, how maybe the cultural landscape or even the cultural industry in the UK might be retooled to give younger voices more access and more prominence. I think that's a problem to do with, it's an evolving thing, isn't it? Music, popular music, rock music, whatever you want to call it. It's still a youngish art form. 
So we don't really know what the future of it holds, what the, what the rules are as such, or what's expected. I think one issue is that because, I mean, this is, we all know this, because artists now don't make money from record sales in the way they did, they have to tour. So they're much more visible than they ever were. And they're constantly touring, rather than just making money off a back catalogue, which they would have done in the past. So it does mean that a lot of artists who otherwise would be not touring or promoting themselves have to do that and are out on the road or doing things to make money. And I suppose that means that younger bands who can't make money from sales find it more difficult to get into that system when there's all these sort of bands retouring albums they made 20, 30 years ago. These are kind of anniversary tours, all these mid-range or even big bands doing that. And that's become part of the heritage industry, which in a way is something kind of responsibility or problem with people not wanting to get, let go of their youth in their ages of, of the age that I am. Let's face it, I'm in my 50s. So people want to go and re-experience that album they bought when they were 20 on the 30th anniversary tour. And so they do that. And that, in a way, maybe clogging up the system, this sort of heritage music thing has got bigger and bigger. It's not just Bob Dylan anymore. It's like every band that ever has been in existence, it seems, is now doing some sort of 20, 25, 30 year anniversary tour of some album or whatever. So that is potentially a problem because it means bands who don't even have a five year history can't really get onto that ladder, as it were. Yeah, I think that's true. The sort of technology and the economics of it are really important as well as in the way it intersects with just personal nostalgia. I think is yes. really interesting. And those older bands, as I will call them, they don't really know how to harness social media or maybe sales in a different way. So they have to just go back to the tried and tested route of touring, endless tours every year to commemorate a record they made whenever. I don't really go to those gigs, even though I like some of the bands. I just find it the most depressing thing in the world, probably. They are really it, depressing, and I've yeah. seen quite a lot of older groups just very obviously going through the motions. Yeah, because they have to. And, you know, I don't want to be at a gig with people my own age, frankly. I just don't know. But then I think it's good when you... I think there has to be a retread, and there has to be a churn almost of bands and people going to gigs. That's why I don't really go to gigs that much anymore. I used to go to a lot. I just think because I shouldn't really be going to gigs. I shouldn't gigs for other people, really, almost. Maybe I'm just being lazy. But I think it's, you know, these anniversary tours, are, that really is nostalgia. I mean, really, I think it's slightly dangerous in a way. But I can't bear to be around people my own age in that way. But um, rave clubs do it now. These kind of iconic rave clubs from the 90s do these like 25th and 30th anniversary parties, which must be, I just can't imagine what they're like. Must be just like a horror film. <laughs> You know. Well, yeah, especially given the um, trajectories of, uh, of some of the players involved, but we, uh, we won't. It sounds mean. I'm being mean about being my own age, but just to go to a place and just relive that moment in your youth. But maybe that was, for a lot of people, that was the greatest time of their lives by quite a long way. So it's, it's to be expected, really, isn't it? Who thought that would have happened 30 years ago? Let's move on to a slightly different type of historical reenactment now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is your project, The Battle of Augury, uh, which you did in 2001. I'm just going to hand over to you, actually, if you'd like to describe this project to our listeners, and then I'll come in with some questions. Well, it's, it's my signature work, almost. When I talk about it, I'd say this is my stairway to heaven, you know, in the sense that it's, it's the one that always comes up in the way, or, or people 
wants to hear about whatever but it was art angel had this open call for artists who more or less they didn't know they were going to commission two projects with quite big budgets and they wanted the public or artists community to like send in ideas and i sent in an idea to restage reenact a clash between striking miners pickets as they were and the police that happened june the 18th 1984 at a coking plant outside sheffield at Orgreave, which was one of the most visible and violent clashes in the strike it was on a very hot summer's day it was filmed and you know it was epic in terms of what it looked like and the scale of it, it was between 10 and fifteen thousand people and maybe even up to 20 it was a massive rout of the miners basically with horses and police dogs, snatch squads. It looked like something out of a medieval or Roman era battle with the masses being attacked and dispersed and defeated by the kind of well-organized ranks of the Roman army or something. It struck me as a young person. I saw it on TV. That's how I experienced the strike. When in the early nineties, I thought I would be very interested in revisiting that moment and trying to make sense of it through an artwork. And I thought, why isn't there a reenactment using members of reenactment societies as well as people that had been there originally as pickets with their families? So you'd have this mix of reenactors and people who were veterans of that event. And they would do a day-long reconstruction of that event that had happened in the place where it happened for an audience. That's more or less what happened. We didn't have 15,000. We couldn't do that. But we had 1,000 people. Yeah, and it interests me to hear you say that you had the idea as early as the early 90s, partly because there was another wave, like a final wave of National Union of Mine Worker Strikes in the early 90s, and there was a kind of revisiting of the mid-80s paranoia and attacks on the miners and on Arthur Scargill. It was actually quite different, though. I I remember quite clearly, it was quite interesting. So mid or right-wing press, or some of it, was actually sympathetic to the miners at that point. It was quite strange. There's still a lot of paranoia around Scargo and his role, but I think his role by then had gone had diminished. I mean, after the strike, you know, it was a sort of disaster for him, a personal disaster. He'd sort of taken more of a back seat. But the public were actually quite upset by what had happened, I think, in retrospect. And they were more supportive of the miners and they went into London. People were applauding them. I remember I went to it. And um the atmosphere wasn't as mean. I think Thatcher was gone by then, which is probably one reason. And it was a more, people were quite angry with Michael Heseltine for doing the second wave. I remember it. They still did it, of course, but it wasn't quite as hardened and as tribal as it had been. But still, you know, the, the industry was destroyed. But yes, in the early 90s, it, there was a sort of echo almost. But was there anything about the shift in the cultural memory of the 1984 to 85 strike during the 1990s? Because obviously, from about 1992 or 93 onwards, it's fairly obvious that the Conservatives will not win another term in government. By the mid-1990s, it's very obvious that New Labour are going to form the new administration. And by the end of the 90s, it's fairly clear that they are trying to draw a line yeah. under like 80s socialism. I don't need Absolutely. to relitigate all this factional Labour Party stuff, because I'm sure all our listeners are heartily sick of it including myself but um this is absolutely the case because i remember it was so not on the agenda or on anyone's radar in the sort of late 90s when we started preparation 
the minor strike felt like it was a thousand years ago basically it was never mentioned it was never brought up by anyone it was buried as a story or as a history because obviously new labor just did not want to go back there because it was so divisive and it was so not what blair was about basically this was about the future for britain and this was definitely something in the past it was kind of a shameful moment for everybody almost no one really comes out that well from it in a way i was very aware that i was making something at a time when it was absolutely not zero interest it felt by anyone in it which was actually great because there was no interest in it i felt this is actually an advantage and uh, something that could be used almost and also the art market at that time and arts around this moment was about money and Saatchi. i mean it was really gearing up massively that element of the art market and these artists becoming stars basically you know the sort of wave of Britpop and cool britannia they were part of that and this was like the least cool thing you could ever imagine making an artwork about a trade union dispute and a picket you know it's like it was so not cool britannia which was brilliant for me personally which was great and going up to sheffield and doing it and not being in london all of that i really enjoyed the kind of perversity of it almost but that's just by chance in a way because that was the atmosphere in Britain at the time. But it, for me, it made it more um, interesting. There was resistance from Sheffield Council, but that was a Lib Dem council. They just didn't want to know about it. And if they'd have had their way, they would have tried to prevent it happening. But because we were employing a lot of people locally, but also it was billed as a film shoot rather than an artwork, they couldn't really say you can't do that and the police were not very happy about it either but all we needed for them was to close a couple of roads for a few hours you know quite quiet roads as it was but there wasn't huge support politically for it and if anything people were very suspicious or just like i said a bit embarrassed by that yeah i mean that doesn't surprise me at all to hear certainly you know 1980s industrial disputes both the minor strike and the newspaper strikes in Wapping were not particularly fashionable subjects to be talking about in the early New Labour era. You know, it interests me that politically at that time, the subject was not being widely talked about. And like you say, there was widespread embarrassment about it. And I think with, with good reason. But also the form that you chose, you know, the historical enactment, two things that spring to mind are firstly, that, you know, as a form, it, it's something I would think of as fairly small C, if not large C, conservative. And B, it's something I would have thought of as being, you know, quite kind of fusty and, yeah, again, a bit kind of embarrassing, you know, up there with like collecting model trains or something. Yes. I mean, small C and big C. Yeah. When I met the reenactors, and there were more reenactors than former miners taking part, they were, you know, they are of a certain cut, in a way, a certain kind of person, and not exclusively, but they are people that like putting on uniforms, they like warfare, they like guns, they like being told what to do, shouting at people. It's a certain kind of person that appeals to them. Also, it was very clear when I started looking at, this was a time where you, it was more easy to tell people's political affiliations because people read newspapers in public. So you could just tell very quickly by the newspapers people were reading when we were rehearsing where their sympathies lay or where you suspected they did. There weren't many Guardian readers in this or Daily Mirror readers, even in the reenactors. It was, you know, other newspapers. So I kind of got the feel of them for that. And that, of course, had some bearing on the reenactment itself because they were very worried about the miners. They were very scared of them and thought the miners would actually start a proper riot and would attack the reenactors and would end up becoming some sort of revolutionary moment in British politics. 
which would have been amazing if it had happened. It wasn't going to happen. And of course, the miners, the former miners, were like so attuned to politics and to these kind of subtleties of power and people's perception of them. But they really played up on it and just terrified these reenactors, even though they were massively outnumbered. So we had to change the reenactment of the night before because there was a kind of a mutiny from the reenactors because they actually believed that this was going to happen. So we had to swap around people. So miners were playing police and what were reenactors were playing miners. So we mixed up and everyone was told, don't, you know, don't muck it up, don't do this, don't do that. And the the former miners knew what was going on, but they still took the reenactment to like the edge of real riot in a sense, the edge. They knew how far how to go, how far to go, and it made it an incredibly emotional and intense, tense experience for everybody. And that was what made it so great, especially in the second part of the day when it was through a village. They knew they played it very well. So yes, I was interested in that. I was interested in playing with this idea of reenactors and their world, and the fact that here finally they would be able to reenact a battle with real veterans of the battle alongside them, rather than playing you know, being in a battle from two, three, four, five hundred 500 years ago when they would never meet anyone who was there. So they could actually get the real history from these people. It's really interesting what you say about the political allegiances of the people involved in the film and how that coloured the reenactment. I'm a big fan of and have been revisiting a lot lately the works of Peter Watkins, the yes. documentarist and feature filmmaker. And similar things often happen in his films, his films that recreate the Battle of Culloden, uh, in the 18th century or the Commune of Paris, uh, oh. which I watched recently. And in both cases, he would recruit people to reenact these events whose political sympathies mirrored the people involved. Similar thing happened with his film Punishment Park, which draws on a lot of Vietnam War distance, people opposed to the draft. Yes. And genuine violence would break out on his set to the point where I think on the set of Punishment Park, they were worried that somebody had been killed. So it's a real risk to do that. Funny enough, I need to interject because we asked Peter Watkins to direct the film because we said, look, we're doing this thing. It's in a way, it's an homage to you and Culloden, especially because Culloden is such an amazing film, even though it's made about 50 people. It's the most stunning film, actually. And we said, we'd love you to come out of semi-retirement or to come to Britain and do this for us and direct this film with all these people. And he wrote a very long letter saying, well, he couldn't, which was a great pity, really. But, you know, I'm a massive fan of his work. And uh, yeah, we were pushing it. It was a sort of potentially dangerous situation, but it was absolutely fine in the end. I didn't know that about Peter Watkins. And yeah. you know, indeed, I would have, would have loved to have seen the film he made of it. He'd only yeah. just done The Commune at that point, And yes. I don't think it was common knowledge that he was semi-retiring from film and moving on to solely concentrating on his media theory. But Mike Figgis directed the film of The Battle of Orgreave in the end, and you include a lot of interviews with the participants as well as the footage of the recreation itself. So what are your recollections of the interviews of people in, in that film? What stood out for you and what would you relay to our listeners now? I actually directed those interviews, in fact, because I, so I was there. I, was, I suppose what I'm saying is I was there because we, after the reenactment, we went to some people's houses and just talked to them about the strike because we weren't sure if we had enough footage or we needed some sort of um, narrative to go through the film. And it was actually quite helpful. So I interviewed a former policeman, a former ambulance driver, a former trade unionist, and one of the women involved in the women's groups about what it was like that day and what the strike was like for them. We got a great interview out of a former policeman 
about how conflicted he was then, even and then since then, it's been sort of ruined his life almost. Just, you know, what happened to him. So it was quite, those were really great because they grounded the film, you know, because it's quite chaotic, the film in a way, because it's about rehearsing for a riot. So that's quite a weird thing in itself. But we just got a lot of great history and context from people from those interviews, which we could use to structure the film. For me, that was really important to get those people, especially the policeman, because it wasn't straightforward for a lot of people. It certainly wasn't for him because he'd been a former miner. He was a miner, then a soldier in Northern Ireland. Then he came back from Northern Ireland as a policeman. You know, a lot of people probably in, who were miners did join the armed forces and then you come back and you don't go back into the mine because it's such, you know, it's such a terrible job for a lot of people. It's a really tough job become a policeman and then within a few years you're fighting your mates basically you're you know they're attacking you you're attacking them or whatever you know you're you're battling against your own effectively almost within the family so you know there's kind of terrible time of it yeah and that's really interesting to hear about because i think you know as we've covered or at least hinted at one reason why the minor strike wasn't being talked about so much at the time you were making the work is because people haven't really worked out how to process it and I do think the legacy of the minor strike, of course, is something that fed very much into Corbyn's labour. And a lot of the older people in particular, who I tended to meet through events like The World Transformed or through organising around that political project, were people who were very spurred by the memory of things like the minor strike and a lot of the other crucial defeats in the 1980s and saw no, in this project one last chance to address them. Well, I think it's true. I think, you know, whenever I show that film, there are screenings, someone always will almost stand up and give testament to what it was like for them, where they were, what happened to them. It's still a cause that people go on about and reference. And it's still, for a lot of people, it's still unfinished business. You know, working on that film, you saw people that had got on with their lives after and managed to rebuild their lives, literally, because they lost their job and lost so much. But other men mainly really found it very difficult to get beyond what had happened to them. And so they couldn't think beyond that moment. They couldn't resolve it in their minds. So it was unfinished business, unfinished history, effectively. And it was still a very, very sore point to the point where a lot of the people I spoke to wouldn't want to go to Nottingham, even go through Nottingham, wouldn't, wouldn't want to meet anyone from Nottingham because obviously a lot of mines in Nottingham stayed open during a strike. And they cannot, will never forgive the county of Nottingham and its people for that. So there's a lot of bitterness. That was admittedly in 2001, but that was 17 years after the strike had finished. No, sorry, 16 years. So at that point, a lot of people hadn't moved on from it and were still wanting some kind of resolution from it or recognition that what happened to them was a crime, basically. But there were still these these interesting resonances coming well into the 2010s. So I'm thinking of uh, Seamus Milne, of course, wrote The Enemy Within, the most yes. prominent history of the strike becoming Jeremy Corbyn's director of communications during his period in charge of the Labour Party. And also in the 2017 election, when Corbyn's Labour did much better than a lot of people were expecting, but one of the seats they didn't win was Mansfield. And it was widely pointed out but still considered bad form to point out that Mansfield was a, a centre of scapping during the yes. strike. But then he lost everything in the last election. Yeah. Where everything all those pit villages went Brexit, Boris basically. I mean not all like maybe all. I mean it was just it was a wipeout, wasn't it, in that area. 
And you could blame the strike and the aftermath of the strike for a popularity of Brexit and the ideas behind it. And then this massive defeat for Corbyn. He really, I don't even know whether he was expecting it or not, but it was shocking really. There was certainly a kind of feel-good atmosphere to the 2017 election that just wasn't there for the 2019 election. You know, I voted in 2017 with a sense of real kind of lightness and happiness, and I'd really enjoyed that election campaign. And your posters mocking Theresa May's strong and stable slogan was something I'd enjoyed and indeed something I wrote about not long after the election, about the culture around the election. And then by 2019, that had been... I think really quite calculatedly and quite deliberately taken away. You know, the election was held really at the point when the last vestiges of enthusiasm around the 2017 election have been squeezed out of particularly the young. Winter. Maybe they did realise this, but it wasn't that clear that actually Boris Johnson and Theresa May are so different as opponents in terms of how to approach them that I don't think the Labour Party really understood that they couldn't do this exactly the same kind of approach in terms of the campaign. It was a very, very different kind of opponent. And I think that they didn't really grasp that in the way they should have done because he's really tough. You know, he's a brilliant campaigner and brilliant communicator, whatever you say about him. He knows what to do. And um, in the way Theresa May didn't, she didn't look like she was enjoying herself, where he looked like he was having a whale of the time on the whole, even though he would not be interviewed and would hide in places. It was just the showmanship of it, which obviously Theresa May had none of. And I think that was a problem for me personally, looking at it unfold. I suppose it wasn't surprising, but I was hoping that it wouldn't be as bad as it was. I suppose we all were, weren't we? Yeah, I mean, I I had that sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach when the election was called. And uh, I think a lot of us, myself very much included, took Antonio Gramsci's line about pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, uh, a bit too much to heart. Although I guess, what else could we have done, really? Well, um, can you imagine if they'd have been able to like postpone it just for a couple of months? When was it? December? Like into mm-hmm. February or March. Then it would have had to have been postponed because of the virus. And we would have had to have an election after this at some point, because it would have been able to do that because of the fixed terms. Can you imagine an election this time next year or in December? It'd be a very different thing than has just happened. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like a particularly disastrous fluke of history that the COVID-19 crisis has hit at the precise point where the left has been crushed. Yeah, you know, he was given a mandate in December, which is about as late as you could get into this crisis. You know, it was actually in the world in December, but we didn't know about it. So he's got a clear run, potentially. But I, you know, I would think we almost need a general election after this is cleared up, if it does clear up, just to sort of, or some kind of referendum about Britain to change <laughs> it, because it's going to be such a trauma for the country. It's like we need some question has to be asked of us and then answered about our future direction. We can't let these people deal with it because they, they're clearly not up to it, are they? I mean, I so. completely agree, but, you know, I think the dominant feature of British politics over the last kind of 10 or 15 or 20 years has been a real lack of accountability for people in power, a lack of media scrutiny, a lack of mechanisms by which people can meaningfully challenge authority. And the Corbyn project for me was really an attempt to restore faith in a lot of liberal institutions, you know, for all the shrieking about Stalinism or Venezuela or or whatever. That was really what it represented to me. Anyway, I think we should move on from this uh, because we're 
we're drifting slightly off topic but yeah um, but it's interesting isn't it i mean it, it, you can't not think about it what, what we've been through it's been tumultuous i mean it's you know, we all have our opinions on Jeremy Corbyn. Weirdly, he and I shared a platform when we did a, did a screening of the Battle of Orgreave about 10 years ago. And we sat on the platform together and discussed the film and discussed the minor strike because he's virtually my local MP, actually. My MP is Emily Thornbury, where he's just up the road in some sort of community event and he was there. We, it was really good, actually. But yes, let's carry on. Well, there was something about his approach to culture that really inspired me, but maybe that's a topic for another day because we're running out of time. So I just wanted to ask you about what you've been doing recently. I know you were on the picket lines, as was I, for the University College Union strike in February and March. And I know you've also been doing a poster campaign in relation to COVID-19. So maybe we should close the show by talking about that. Well, I've did. I've done a few things. I've done virtually nothing really in the last ten weeks, to be honest with you. Feeling particularly useless, really. Oh yes, I was asked by students to go on, if not picket lines, then give talks near to picket lines. I think that's probably more accurate. I uh, gave a talk on the street to call to old students and London University students, which was great actually. I really enjoyed that. I felt very old-fashioned in a way, and you can see how people get into doing that, like political people giving a talk to people standing up in the street, it does have an appeal. And I'm glad I don't do it too often. It could get out of control in a way and just go to your head. And then I gave a few other talks to some students at Goldsmiths who had sort of organised their own curriculum because of the strike and was occupying their studios and were supporting their teaching staff by doing things. And which is interesting, you know, when you see these young people doing something they probably never expected they'd have to do in the university you know when they're paying a lot of money for those courses and so on and they're having these sort of rotors and having diagrams up of what they're doing they had a great diary up of every day and who was doing what and how they were self-organizing and i said to them you have to keep that wall chart that you've sort of hand drawn it's really important to keep things like that because it's really interesting about how they were making these big group communal decisions about things. And of course, it was breaking down and then getting better. I mean, it was a bit like Peter Watkins, <laughs> Peter Watkins' film, but in real life. And then I gave another talk in Peckham to some students from the LCC. So I did that. I wasn't, I'm not really a sort of megaphone on the street person as a rule. And I was offered a megaphone to give my art history talk and my talk, and I didn't, I just couldn't do that. I was just too self conscious. And then I've done the odd, I've done a few posters i did one that just said tax avoidance kills which is up in the street a nice cheery positive poster this is something that's it's obsessed me for years about how companies often companies manage not to pay tax even though they have a huge presence in the country and do business in the country and i think now we understand what the consequences of that is with what's been going on so that was that that was just like a real banner headliney type thing that was in the street and I did one, thank God for immigrants, which is a sort of post-Brexit statement that really relates to how the word immigrant was used as an insult for so long, or especially during Brexit. It was just used as a weapon, sort of weaponized as a word. And now, of course, we've gone 180 degrees, really. And we would, we'd, there'd be so many more people dead if it wasn't for people who've come from different other countries to come work in the NHS or as carers or whatever, really. So... It was just putting two very contentious words together, God and the immigrants. So I've sold that poster as a fundraiser. And then I did another one, which is just an old, old classic of mine, um, as if you can call it that, Bless This Acid House, which was basically made 
with the aging ravers in mind, especially men, which I've got a bit of stick for because I just on Instagram when they I said calling all middle-aged men or attention all middle-aged men just because I'm a middle-aged man and I kind of know the psyche of middle-aged men. And in a way, the poster now speaks of their, their new domesticity because people my age now have mortgages. They have children, wives, whatever, partners. And so Bless This Acid House is, in a way speaks of their domesticity, but also their interest in Acid House still. And it was a way to sort of bring those two together. So, yes, I've done those three things posters really and i've been thinking about the aftermath of this culturally in fact that's a very grand term about what's going to happen will this be memorialized in any way what's happened to us or will there be an event will there be an object will there be how are we going to mark this moment in history what should happen but i think a lot of people have been thinking about that that's a really interesting question for sure and as somebody who is very interested in and has made work engaging with the legacy of the HIV and AIDS crisis that's been on my mind a mm. lot. So maybe we should conclude the show if you want to give any more thoughts on that. But also I wondered if you've you know, been developing any thoughts or anxieties. I know I certainly have about the likely impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the education sector and the art sector, because I think the two things are very, very closely linked. Well, yeah, I mean, every day someone writes to me about something that's happening and asking, well, informing me really of what's going on, especially with theatres at the moment, with performing arts. I think museums and galleries will be okay in terms of the whole spectrum of who's going to suffer the most. But live art, theatre, music, clubs, I mean, there probably will be underground clubs, won't there? Like properly underground illegal gatherings there probably are already of young people. That will come back. Almost going back to the beginning of our talk about Depression Mode fans, it would be like living in Russia in the 80s or 70s, people gathering in groups to socialise when they're not allowed to by law. That might come back if it hasn't already. But, I mean, museums will open before theatres open. So I think it's going to be very tough for them. The art market is still, I don't think it's still very clear. I mean, it's not clear because we're not really clear how long it's going to go on for and what the scope of this infectious disease is, really. So it's difficult to say. We're still in it. So it's difficult to think beyond it, really. But I think there's a lot of worry, isn't there, about those institutions. And edu- of course, education was in a bit of a tight spot anyway, relying so much. This model was based so much on students from abroad, often from China and South Korea and places like that, which now... That model is probably, for the moment, I imagine, is decimated. So that's millions, if not billions of pounds of revenue they're losing from that. So they might have to rethink how they work. For me, the most stunning thing that's happened in the last week was at Cambridge University saying they probably won't be doing lectures until the year after next, or no, next academic year. So September 2021 might be the first time they actually reconvene as a university as we know it. So for the whole of next year, more or less, they'll be doing online courses. But that really is quite shocking to think of that is what they're thinking. I think the challenges for education are probably long-term huge, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling is that this situation is going to exacerbate a lot of situations that are already extant. And yeah, the crisis in higher education in particular is, is quite symbolically 
notable, I think, that the UCU strikes were basically terminated by the beginning of the lockdown or the lockdown. Yeah. I think this idea around universities being buildings and lots of buildings and making new buildings, and obviously that's these institutions as, as structures, maybe as physical structures might dissipate and it'll be more if we do more on online learning which of course has been going on for years this maybe is the moment when creatively you could bring in new forms of online learning that would satisfy people but i just don't know what they would be but we must have it within our grasp to come up with something that is some kind of substitute for a normal as it was university three-year degree we have to don't we i do think that this maybe is the moment when we see the full potential of the internet for good coming into play because of what's happened in the last 10 weeks it might put the internet ahead by five years in terms of what's possible for learning and working as well it's really very similar to how people are going to work isn't it from now on they're not going to necessarily go into work but they will be working so you might not go to universities but you'll be working from home doing a course which often was seen as a second class course or some sort of scam almost that you're not there but maybe it will that won't that will go people will, will take the very seriously courses that are entirely online i don't know yeah it could be the the wide-scale adoption of a kind of open university model as well Who yeah knows? Which, um which is too early fine for some things obviously not for others you know if you have to work in a laboratory or you're an artist and you need a studio that's not great but maybe there's remote learning in lo- remote labs and re- remote studio complexes i don't know yeah Luckily, i'm not being paid to sort of come up with solutions no me neither and uh, it's a way to make money out of this and if there is and i'm sure people will be desperately trying to do that absolutely no i'm quite glad it's not my job to try and make money out of this or come up with solutions either in a way we should be included in the conversation we as in people who aren't just thinking about money and are concerned about the arts and about education it shouldn't just be people who are hedge funders and tech people who are tech people often don't seem to have any interest in ethics there should be people who are you'd like to think are interested in these things not just as money-making vehicles would be in the conversation at some point yeah and that's where collective activity collective political and cultural activity is going to be incredibly important i think yeah okay i think we should probably conclude the conversation there so jeremy thanks so much for joining me on suite 212 today thank you uh it was very nice to speak to you it went very quickly which is a good sign <laughs> Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Thanks so much for doing it. Listeners, we'll be back soon with more of these sessions and we will be doing a series of panel discussions about how COVID-19 is affecting various cultural sectors, the first of which should be out towards the end of next week. You can follow us on Twitter at suite underscore 212, find us on Facebook, find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash suite dash 212. Subscribe to us on Patreon if you haven't already, patreon.com dash sweet 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.